I don't know about you, but when I find a, a good quote, I, I kind of go over and over and over and over and over again, so that it just begins to kind of come up in consciousness. And it's, that's one way that I use a study, rather than the accumulation of information. It's some pithy statement that strikes you in some way, which is meaningful for your own practice, and then just reading it again and again or memorizing it, and then that begins to manifest as memory, isn't it? So we can do that in a negative sense. I can kind of obsess about something negative and just keep thinking and reading about that, and then my memory will be conditioned by that, and that happens. But also I can, I can bring in dharma as a, a reflective memory. This is different than just studying and agreeing with knowledge. So knowledge is helpful. But when, when does knowledge become contemplative? And when is knowledge more than just information? Well, when, it, when knowledge begins to be the way it affects your perceptions, your, your living of life, and that, that dharma information starts to be, help you to see the way things are from that angle, then that's contemplative. Isn't it? Um, so I think like, I know my friends t- tell me that they studied Four Noble Truths in high school and got A's. <laughs> right? And then, then, then they came here and then, oh, that's what that was about. <laughs> and that, that's a kind of you know, obvious example of just this knowledge. So more is not better. So I used to have that. I, you know, you, you look at a bookshelf and you think, oh, somewhere in there there's truth. The truth is always here, and, 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 and the language helps you to, to realize that. So anyway, let's do, I'll read this again. <coughs> when, a, when, a monk, when a monk ordains, he ordains for the realization of Nibbana. That's, 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 the, uh, that's the purpose. So, so Buddhism isn't a, utili- uh, isn't a utopian teaching. It's not saying that if you do enough good works you'll be free from suffering, and that the world will find its perfect, balanced, final end. It's not utopian in that sense. So altruism is the method. Compassion is the method. Generosity is the method. But the goal is Nibbana. And probably not to use Nibbana, you have all this other language that the Buddha used to point to something which is really ineffable. It's hard to describe it is the unformed, the unconditioned, the end, the truth, the other shore, the subtle, the everlasting, the invisible, the undiversified peace, the deathless, the blessed, safety, the wonderful, the marvelous, Nibbana, purity, Freedom, the island, the refuge, the beyond. So there's many, many avenues that the Buddha is trying to point to something which is really beyond language. And then, and then, how do you do it? What do you do? Having nothing, clinging to nothing. That is the island. There is no other. That is Nibbana, I tell you, the total ending of aging and death. 
So there you go. That's done. That's the whole teaching. <laughs> and so uh, you could think a lot about this. I have <laughs> forty years of, but having nothing, clinging to nothing—that is the island. And so, what does that mean? Well, I'm not going to give up my iPad. <laughs> I'm going to teach you that my iPad. And I've got a coffee grinder, too. <laughs> so it sounds like, okay, having nothing, clinging to nothing, you know, you sort of have to live on an island where there is nothing. <laughs> if you take it literally, and it just it gets kind of absurd. So what is, it, what is it, ownership? So one of the ways I look at ownership is preoccupation. So that's a word I, I find helpful. I've talked about it often, but so I'm sitting here in the present moment, and maybe my hip starts to hurt. So uh, not being preoccupied with pain, knowing pain is an object, is an island, that's hard to do. So I'm sitting here, hip starts to hurt, and I start to think, shift. So then my mind becomes preoccupied with the khandhas. And then, and it's all, you know, we all face that pain, discomfort, emotional discomfort. So our, our, our attention can be really wrapped up with that. Or the, the opposite, uh, be really wrapped up with beauty, with uh, interesting projects, making little boxes out of wood. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, and and so it's this kind of preoccupation with our, our sense experience that prevents us from remembering the island, remembering the island, and then something stops our minds. Maybe a sound. They're like so. What, what you it's really good to observe in meditation. You're, you're meditating, and then if you know you get caught in planning your next move next year or next week or whatever as you're in planning mode. And then a, and a car honks its horn. And all of a sudden, you're home again. Aren't you? You're, you're there. You're present. And that's all it is. That's all it is. It's just that. But then very quickly, your mind will pick up the next preoccupation. And in whatever way. You might judge yourself, or you might think you have to try harder, or whatever. But, but that, if, you don't, if I don't appreciate that moment, then I just jump into another seeking of an experience, then I've lost it. I've lost that moment. So that moment... And, and notice how that works. It usually is pain or sound, isn't it? When you're meditating. Sitting there, you, you, you decide to do some anapanasati or something to keep you present. Okay, that's good. And then, of course, you're not present. You're just simply absent. <laughs> and, then, and then it's usually pain... Someone coughs, uh, something, something simple like that, and the sense world kind of awakens you, and you see what's going on. But then, very, very, very often, um, you think you're the thinker, and because you think you're the thinker, then you try to stop thinking. And then, as you try to stop thinking, you're no longer aware of the way things are. You're trying to do something and you lose that sense of openness and awareness seems like the right strategy 
seems like the right strategy. But have you noticed that when you try to stop thinking, that lo and behold, a few minutes later, you're more, even more lost. You can totally lost the plot. So, trying to stop thinking is still this idea, I am someone who is a thinker, I have to stop thinking, rather than to awakening to thought as an object. And as long as, as, long as there's avijja, or uh, ego view, or self-view, avijja, pacheya, sankara, the, the uh, ignorance, that whole sense of me trying to become something, that can't be the island, the deathless, because it's in the future. In the future, whereas if you if you take that moment of awakening when the when the car honks its horn, and then you just say, "Oh, that's it! I'm home. That's it. Don't touch it," and have faith in that, then that moves to two moments. So I'm not I'm not saying just just like just keep thinking that'll be good for you. I'm not saying that. So I'm saying notice the end of a thought, and as you notice the end of a thought, you'll tend to notice the arising of thought. And as you see thought as an object, you begin to see, no, no, the island is not thought. The island, you know, from the island, this is a perspective of knowing the way things are. And thought's such a enslaving kind of sankara, isn't it? It just kind of grabs our whole, just preoccupies our attention in all manner of ways, whether it's you know, fearful or exciting or whatever. And so... I know that's one of the first questions I asked Ajahn Chah as a summoner. I said, all this thinking, man, how, you know, can't I just get rid of it? He said, oh, thought's natural. Thought's natural. You just have to see it as an object. So that helped. Because up until then, I was furiously meditating, trying to get rid of thought. Which just got me more tense. So the, the, the ability to, as we say, go for the gap. <laughs> That's what we say in monastic life. Go for the gap. Notice the silence. Ajahn Sumedha would recommend, like, just take a thought and say, tomorrow is Sunday. And then wait. Notice the end of a thought. Tomorrow is Sunday. And just notice the silence like that. Get to know that silence. Be with that silence. And then, and then, then, like, notice when when you have awoken to the fact that you were planning something. Let's say, as an example, what's what do you do the next moment? Do you really awaken the mind, open the mind, or are you kind of trying to get rid of thought, or do you do nothing and just sort of? So effort is effort is very subtle here. Obviously, if if you know if your mind is plotting to kill someone, then you just scream at it and say, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. But in meditation, it's much more subtle. So sometimes you'll find, you know, things like your thinking mind is going on and on and on, and something will interrupt it, and you'll be with that interruption, and your mind will just fall into silence. It's, it's kind of marvelous. So go for the gap. <coughs> Not the clothing. <laughs> I don't have I don't have a gap outfit. <laughs> and 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 uh, if you think about the mind which is trying to become something, it's not receptive. It's kind of going to the future, trying to get rid of the present. So that's why compassion is important. 
Compassion is, or empathy, almost, if you think about it, like forgiveness, generosity, compassion, joy, peace. They're all connected things. They connect, like they're all, more, to me, they're all forms of empathy that connect you. Anger, uh, hyper judgment, hyper criticism, uh, greed, uh, self doubt, self disparagement. They're all kind of alienating energies caught up in thought. So any amount of empathy that you can bring into consciousness through generous works or whatever, and you expand that universally, that's like that suggestion of the meditation I did just now. It's, it's unbounded that you don't exclude anything. Then your mind, as Ajahn Sumedho says, it all belongs. It all belongs. And then your mind has freedom because it's no longer caught in one particular object. So this combination of awakeness and compassion are very much uh, Buddhist. And the imagery behind me, Hua informed me, the image there on the your right, my left, is Kuan Yin, which is the symbol of compassion. And that's the image we have out there. So the Chinese Buddhism anthropomorphized compassion we kept it as a concept in Theravada. So it's Kuan Yin. And this image here is a symbol of wisdom. And so wisdom and compassion, or awakeness and heart, you could say, are, are the way of, of uh, Buddhist practice. which can do that all the time. And directly behind me, the Shakyamuni, who is the Buddha of this time, and then the largest guy there is um, Great Watcher Bu- uh, Buddha. No. Um, <laughs> sacrilege. <laughs> he, is, he is the future Buddha, they say. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Maitreya. Uh, I don't know where that symbology comes from. Um, and then the one in front of that, the standing one, is Amitabha Buddha. And that's Pure Land Buddha. So Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, developed a whole theology and, and really veered away from, from the old schools. And there's a book, that, uh, there's a book called Buddhist Religions that is a university text. And one of the chapters, Theravada chapters, done by Ajahn Tanisiro. And Buddhism really veered off into manifestations of religious practice which you, you hard to, it's hard to uh, rationalize that they come from the same the same outfit and what they did is they took they took uh, in, like in iconography you have you have the Buddhist you have a stupa originally it was a, just a burial mound then it became more elaborate with symbology and on top of the stupa they put an umbrella and on that umbrella they put many tears and uh, the Chinese took just the umbrella of the stupa and they created a pagoda. Mm-hmm. So you see the historical evolution of iconography or architecture. Huh? Mm-hmm. So you see in a Chinese tent, mm-hmm. you just see the pagoda, which is actually just the umbrella of the stupa. As you go to Sri Lanka, you see in Runwelisaya, you see the whole hemisphere. Well, the same, they did the same thing with philosophy. They took a couple of ideas and they ran with those ideas. So one of the ideas was that um, there are many Buddhas in the past and 
there will be many Buddhas in the future, which to me, I just take it as there's always wise beings. There's always enlightenment. But they, the Mahayana then, then took that on and, and kind of created this, well, there's many beings, and there are other realms. Well, there's this Buddha called Amitabha in a pure land. And then they morphed that. They said, well, if I pray to Amitabha and I do recitations, then that will get me reborn in the pure land and I'll hang out with Amitabha Buddha and get enlightened then. So from one idea of there were many Buddhas in the past and many, many futures, they took that and created a whole religion around that. Or Zen went another way, you know. Zen, Zen went towards emptiness. So you have... Buddhism is very complicated that way, it's history. But Theravada, it's... here we are. <laughs> this is what we do.